available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. I'm your host, Joshua Summer. If you're watching here on YouTube, please click that subscribe button and hit the bell for continued notifications. This podcast is all about baptism. So this is your fair warning that this is a Baptist talking about baptism. Uh, This is a Baptist on a Baptist podcast channel talking about baptism, which should not be a surprise for anyone. I've done several episodes on baptism in the past. Um, I did a, a brief series where I compared... Uh, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, mainly to um, to confessionally Reformed Baptist theology, <laughs> which is I understand there is often understood to be a, a large chasm between those three traditions, and indeed there is, and that's that's what I wanted to cover and look at in that series. And of course, baptism came up then, and I've I've done other things on baptism, especially in relation to the covenants uh, throughout the history of this channel. What I would like to do here is I want to look at the distinctives of the Baptist doctrine of baptism, which is just distinctive to credo-baptism in general, um, except for some of the maybe older uh, formulations of credo-baptism and and apparitions of credo-baptism throughout history. that were credo-baptistic in a superficial sense, but for very different substantial reasoning. Um, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to look at the doctrine of baptism, and and this is going to be very simple. Um, I, I'm not even going to I'm not going to analyze the confession too much here. Um, uh, just understand that the larger, perhaps more nuanced doctrine is is assumed, and then, of course, the the defense of uh, credo-baptism that is given um, as an appendix to the confession is is assumed uh, as well. But I, I'm trying to be as principle as possible in this episode, because what, I'm, what I want to do is, I was actually having a conversation with uh, uh, Dr. Sam Renahan one time, and it was just earlier this year, uh, so not very long ago, and we were talking about disser- doctoral dissertations, and, um, you know, if, if I did a dissertation and, and of course I haven't exactly narrowed down w- what I would want to do for a dissertation, but I would imagine that, uh, one of the things that I would like to focus on, whether I did a dissertation on it or not, would be the lines of continuity, uh, throughout, uh, extant church history between Baptist sacramentology and, uh, the, uh, kind of um, doctrine of baptism and the Lord's Supper even that you get throughout the history of the church, which is often set forth and presented as if it's one singular kind of paedobaptistic view. And uh, when you begin to look into the history, you realize that, no, it's not one single monolithic paedobaptistic view. Um, but also, to be fair to those who might tend toward that mode of argumentation it's 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 not baptist either and so when you when you get into the extant source material uh you realize that actually baptism's quite a bit more complicated in terms of how it's been 
thought about and how it's been practiced throughout the last two millennia, especially there in the earliest centuries of the church. And so what I want to do here is I kind of want to give a little bit of a, uh, an ice tip of the iceberg introduction to, to something like that. Uh, before I get started, I would like to mention that there are some good resources on this from the Baptist perspective. Um, so Benjamin Keach uh, discusses uh, the history of baptism from a Baptist perspective. Uh, uh, Henry Danvers' um, treatise on baptism uh, discusses it, the history from a Baptist perspective and, and, and gives kind of a, a summary yet somewhat extensive in terms of the instances he surveys systematically uh, kind of overview. Um in his work, treatise on baptism. So, and and kind of what he's what he's doing is he's is he's saying, look, there's 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 wide disagreement uh, about baptism, um, and, and it doesn't all land on your side, Reformed Pado Baptists, right? Um, and in, in some ways, the what the Baptists were showing that were trying to show the Reformed Pado Baptists, like the Reformed Presbyterians in the 17th century, was, look, you guys are actually the novelty. Um, because, and I don't say that with any disrespect toward any brothers or sisters who are watching this and would, uh, call themselves paedo-baptists, but, but what I would want to say is in the 17th century, um, and, and, and the 16th century, uh, to, to some extent, you're looking at a, a, a version of paedo-baptism that, is somewhat difficult to find in history. I'm not going to say it's it's impossible to find before that time, but um, it certainly uh, as innovative, if not more innovative, I think than the Baptist position. I would go so far as 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 to say that. Um, uh, and 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 that that is admitting that neither of those positions in substance are completely or absolutely innovative. There, there is historical precedent for, for both of them. Uh, of course, I would say there's only biblical precedent for, uh, for the Baptist position. Otherwise I wouldn't be a Baptist. So, um, what I would like to do here is I want to, I want to start with the uh, Baptist view of baptism. Um, and I'm going to show the basic doctrine, uh, the core of the doctrine uh, kind of what really matters for Baptists when it comes to baptism. And then I'm going to turn to historical discontinuities. Um, so we're going to look at uh, mostly early church instances. There's, I think, one reference to Thomas here. Um, but mostly early church uh, sources coming up to Augustine. And we're going to see how they differ uh, in nuance from one another, and how again, the my only goal here is to show how baptism wasn't a monolith in terms of the way in which it was practiced. There were uh, some core practices that were always the same. There were some core beliefs about it that were always the same, but then there were there were quite a few differences as well, and differences in terms of how baptism was even articulated in terms of the importance of it in the Christian life. And so that's what I want to show. This, Just by way of preface, 
this is by no means a Baptist sitting here trying to tell you that the only belief uh, uh, in the early church was my position. Uh, I don't think that that's the case. I don't think it's that simple. And so I would not uh, agree with some of the stronger landmarkian tendencies in the SBC in the 19th century and moving out into the independent uh, Baptist world uh, in the 50s and 60s. I would not agree with some of the contentions in, in that camp. I respectfully disagree that there's always been this line of perfect continuity in terms of the doctrine and practice of baptism. Um the first principles of the faith, yes, who God is, uh, who Christ is, what the gospel is, there is certainly lines of continuity, strong lines, quite bold lines of continuity on those things throughout the history of the church. Um, there are not as strong lines of continuity when we get to things like baptism, um, ecclesiology, uh, there, there are a lot of differences when it comes to that. Um, all that to say that uh, that's okay. Um, it's okay for us now because ultimately we don't ground what we do fully and finally in history uh, or in or in extra or or post canonical New Test uh, Christian history. We 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 ground our doctrine fully and finally in the Scriptures. History can serve as a witness to our beliefs about what the scriptures say, and I would say that that is actually the right understanding of tradition, that tradition is sort of a unifying chorus that points us to a right understanding of scripture. Um, but we would not say that, oh, I'm a Baptist because this is the only position that's been held for the last 2,000 years, or I'm a Pado baptist because this is the only position that's been held for the last 2,000 years by the majority. I mean, that's just not how we go about formulating uh, our uh, principles and practice. And so um, it, it should be no surprise or, uh, or, or devastating fact or anything of the sort to learn that, hey, you know, when it comes to something like practice, right, we all confess that, you know, it's not baptism, the practice itself that saves you. Uh, not even a Roman Catholic would agree with that. Um, at least a Tridentine Roman Catholic wouldn't agree with that, pre-Tridentine. Um, I don't know about more recent um, kind of um, conceptions. But um, we, we, wouldn't want to, we wouldn't want to make the mistake of being surprised. Uh, and we'd want to be okay with saying, you know, some of these things just, I mean, we're frail creatures. We tend to get things wrong, and God promised to preserve his church, so we know that what makes a Christian a Christian has to have been, had to have been preserved for these last 2,000 years. Again, God, who God is, who Christ is, what the gospel is. But we get practices wrong, and we get, we get doctrines that flow from the first principles wrong. Though we might have the first principles intact, uh, we can get what flows from them, the conclusions that we draw from those, we can get those wrong and still be secure in our salvation. And so the essence of the church and the essence of what makes a Christian a Christian, the form of the Christian, if you will, um, has never been lost, uh, has never been um, uh, obliterated, 
uh, only to be picked up at some point, like at the Reformation or something like that. It's always been there. Um, but things like baptism have been debated for the last 2,000 years amongst brethren. Um, the Lord's Supper uh, has been deba debated amongst brethren. Um, ecclesiology, church government, has been debated amongst brethren. And, and the list could go on of things that have been debated amongst well-meaning brethren who were true Christians and will be with with one another in glory. Um, and so I don't I don't want to come off as if I'm trying to number one justify my position as I believe it today from the historical chorus of the church. There, there's not a, a ton of unity when it comes to baptism. Um, and and the other thing I don't want to make the mistake of doing is and I don't want to come off this way is I'm not a Baptist trying to prove my position from history. I'm not trying to stand here and say that my position is the one that's m most clearly perceptible amongst the fathers or anything like that. Of course, I think it's the most biblical, but when it gets to post-canonical uh, Christian history, I, I think you're looking at, uh, you know, a, a matrix of complexity when it comes to the doctrine of baptism. Okay, so enough, enough prefacing. Let's get to the Baptist doctrine of baptism. Trinitarian, immersive, to be performed upon profession of faith, and where there is no fruit, there is no baptism in principle, think James 2, and so it's not to be administered to infants, but only those who profess Christianity. So let me get into these a little bit on biblical grounds. The first thing, and, and these are, by the way, these are the things that really matter to Baptists. These are the things that really matter to me personally, and, and these are the things that I think are really clearly taught in the scriptures. The first of which is, and I think the most important. I know we tend to we turn we tend to turn the significance of baptism into the mode, uh, the water itself, the sign, um, rather than the than the thing signified. And the thing signified is our unity with God through Christ, and um, so we have been reconciled and brought into Trinitarian fellowship, and so that's what's chiefly signified in baptism. Baptism is a sign of that. Um, but baptism is not that in and of itself. That is a spiritual and an inward reality that the external sign of baptism signifies. Um, and so the main thing here is actually Trinitarian fellowship. And so one of the most important things about baptism is that it be Trinitarian. That is, that it be administered uh, according to a Trinitarian formula. Now, you start when you start reading uh, some of the fathers and some of the medieval historians and even um, uh, reformers and the post-reformed, you'll realize that they'll say, well, it, you know, if it's, if it's done in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's, of course, valid. That's the explicit way in which Jesus instituted Matthew, Matthew 28. But if it's done in the name of Christ, it's valid as well, because when we refer to Christ, we're referring to... Um, the Son, uh, who is inseparable with the other members of the Trinity being consubstantial with them. Um, and so when we say Christ, there is something implied there more about the Godhead, namely the Trinity. Um, and so to, to administer baptism either in the name of Christ or in the explicit Trinitarian formula would be valid historically, and I think that's a fair point of consideration. Um, but the reason it's so important that it be Trinitarian 
is because of the way in which Jesus expressly commands us to administer baptism. And he does so in Matthew 28, the very famous passage, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, in the name, singular, so one God, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in three persons, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. One of the devastating mistakes that are made, or that is made, whenever we make baptism all about the mode. Okay, I, I don't want to be read as downplaying the importance of the mode. I'm not. But we have to understand that baptism isn't only the mode. And when I'm saying mode, I mean the manner in which baptism is actually administered. Um, is it administered by pouring, sprinkling, immersion? When it's made only about that, and again, that's important, but when it's made only about that, what, what tends to happen historically is that the Trinitarian theology buttressing and undergirding baptism in the first place is left behind. And so you will have some uh, Baptists historically who have identified their own tradition, which they currently hold, to uh, heretics like, um, you know, like the Paulicians, um, a, a, who were who were not orthodox, as far as we know, the extent history that is available to us from them, um, is is suspect. It's spurious. Uh, the source itself is spurious, but then the theology that comes through it, um, if it be uh, credibly attached to them in any way, is most certainly suspect. They were heretics. They were not believers. Even if they, even if we grant that they baptized by way of immersion, that's about all they did that has any sort of similarity with us. If they reject the Trinity but baptize with immersion, they're not brethren. Uh, they're 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 bound for hell. They reject the God who redeems, and so that's a very important thing to understand that baptism must be Trinitarian, and to the to the extent that baptism isn't Trinitarian, it's not only irregular, but it is heretical because it's professing a different God in the ordinance, right? And so uh, it's very important, most fundamentally, it's very important that baptism be Trinitarian. If it's not Trinitarian, then it's, number one, it's not Christian baptism, but number two, it's something that's essentially pagan. Uh, it's a departure from Trinitarian orthodoxy. Uh, so it's very important that baptism be Trinitarian. That's a, that's a, a Baptist belief as well as uh, the belief of other Christians who are not Baptists. So that's one of those things that we have in, in common with one another. With one another. The, the, um, the second thing I would like to mention is immersion. Immersion is very important. Um, two texts I have uh, that point to the importance of immersion. And that is, number one, Romans 6, 3 through 4. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, if you're being consistent with the 
uh, analogical connection between the sign and the thing signified, namely our the thing signified being our being our union with Christ in His death, even. Um, then it would seem most fitting for baptism to be immersion, uh, to take place in the mode of immersion, since death entails being buried, as the text says, Romans 6, 3 through 4. And so the, the best picture of baptism, and I think you can even find theologians in the Middle Ages, I think even Thomas said that immersion was most preferable. Immersion is most preferable because it accords best with that which is signified, namely our union with Christ in his death, which entails burial. Um, we're buried with him, and that would require to be buried with someone in their death would require you to be immersed in the dirt of the earth. And if that's what 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 a baptism is a picture of, then we must be immersed in the water. Um, another similar text, Colossians 2, 11 through 12 in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him, Christ, in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So immersion is a very important aspect of Baptist, um, of Baptist theolo- of the Baptist theology of baptism because it most accords, it's most biblical when it comes to the uh, the the symbology of it, um, this of course always draws us into a conversation of whether baptisms performed uh, with you know n- not being immersion, but uh, but something more along the lines of uh, effusion or you know which is like pouring or sprinkling. Um, or or dipping, um, which I, you know, I think that's mainly an infant thing, uh, which of course we would we would disagree with. Um, but this always draws us into, you know, into a conversation about the modes of baptism and whether or not a, a baptism performed by way of sprinkling or pouring would be valid. And I would of course say no; those those um, modes of baptism would be invalid. Um, Pouring uh, is, of course, a little closer to immersion, uh, but it's not immersion. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't parallel with what is actually signified in baptism, and that is burial. Um, sprinkling, of course, doesn't at all. Uh, and I can I have massive disagreements with the Eastern Orthodox, but I can at least respect them for the fact that they remain consistent in their baptism of infants in that they, they at least try to immerse the infant, which is quite painful to watch if you've ever seen videos of that kind of thing. Um, those poor little babies have no idea what hit them. But uh, the uh, the reality is, is that I, I think the Baptist, uh, the, the the picture of baptism in Scripture is, is certainly along the lines of immersion. I don't think it's, I think it's very difficult to get away from that. And, and and perhaps other modes came into an uh, came into use because of um, convenience. And when I say convenience, I don't mean something trivial. But I mean, imagine if you were <clears throat> Christians living in the desert, which there were a lot of Christians historically living in North Africa and along the Middle East, where your your access to water is actually quite limited. And so you could understand why you would disagree with the mode. You could at least understand why Christians would improvise 
Um, you know, if you're in a desert, sprinkling uh, or effusion would be more uh, efficiently conservative uh, and perhaps the only thing that you could do at the time, uh, you know, and, and uh, immersion may become difficult. Uh, and of course, you could say, well, you could just travel to a river or, you know, go to the Tigris or the Euphrates and, you know, baptize there. Well, yeah, that's true. But you got to think about how difficult travel was for, for many people back then, especially if you're living uh, as a monastic, which I know comes with its own set of problems. But uh, you, what I'm trying to say here is that you can at least understand how those different ideas came about. And it wasn't just because some guy was sitting here thinking of ways to undermine the biblical example. I, I seriously don't think that ever happened. Um, I think that uh, the road is paved with, uh, the road to perdition, so to speak, is paved with good intentions. And so, you know, you have people uh, living in the desert, perhaps, that found it uh, much more conservative uh, and much more prudent to use lesser amounts of water. And uh, as a result, this kind of whole tradition develops um, where now they don't use sprinkling or effusion because they have to. They do so uh, because of traditional conviction. Uh, they feel that that's the right mode. Um, and, of course, most most uh, traditions that would practice sprinkling would also perform immersion on an adult, to be fair, um, most of the time. Uh, I know growing up Lutheran, uh, that did not happen. Adults were sprinkled just like infants were sprinkled. But I know like in the Presbyterian tradition, adults would be sometimes um, immersed while infants would be sprinkled. Um, and it seems historically that the sprinkling and the effusion were really out of necessity, that the ideal mode of baptism was was immersion. So that, that that's a kind of rabbit trail uh, that I've gone on that, that hopefully was helpful, but Long story short, immersion is a very important aspect, crucial aspect, central aspect to the Baptist doctrine of baptism. Um, the second or the third one that's very important is that baptism be, for, be performed upon a profession of faith by the person to be baptized, not by their parents, but by the person to be baptized. Faith is not imputed from parent to child. And the reason I want to make that very plain is because you will have even Presbyterians who say, well, because, you know, this child was born into a believing household, this child should be baptized on account of the faith of their parents. And, and throughout the medieval tradition, this was very popular, Roman Catholicism, the, the, uh, the faith of the parent, Lutheranism, the faith of the parent kind of sponsors, if you will, the, uh, the, 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 the child who's too young to have his or her own faith. And so, in that sense, the faith of the parent is imputed to the child. Um, uh, that, and, and that's the means by which baptism becomes effectual, either by effectual in the sense of regeneration, uh, in the case of something more like Lutheranism, or effectual in the sense of uh, bringing that child into the external administration of the covenant, in the case of Presbyterianism. Uh, but I want to make cl clear on the outset that as Baptists, we don't believe that the faith of the parent is imputed to the child. One of the reasons for that is that the new covenant seems to be of such a nature that prohibits that relationship. Jeremiah 31, 30, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Whereas before under the Old Testament, uh, the Old Covenant, uh, iniquity was 
uh, was passed down generationally. And uh, so this way, this is a way, Jeremiah 31, 30 is a way of saying not that uh, those in the new covenant are threatened with the punishment of death as if they're, as if they persevere by their own works or as if they're saved by their own works. It's not saying that, but the point is, is that the old covenant administrative um, order is uh, abrogated. It's abolished. And so what becomes important now is one's own individual standing with God through faith that God gives to him or her. And so everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Um, And so how in the New Testament you could get a dynamic of generationally imputed faith is strange to me. I know you can take the household baptism passages and try to, you know, kind of wrench that out of those passages. But really those passages don't tell us anything um, but that one person believed and their household was baptized. And and in one of those cases, we know for, for a fact that the household came to faith. So uh, it, it would be a, a complete argument from silence to suggest that that's what those texts are didactically teaching us. Um, and so uh, the other thing is um, uh, deliverance goes to those who confess and believe, not because they confess and believe, but the confession and the belief is the indication that they are delivered. So Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I don't think that Paul is uh, saying that so long as you say this with your lips, you're going to be saved. He's not saying anything like that at all, but he's given a descriptive um, uh, statement uh, that which describes those who are redeemed. They are those who confess and believe. So if you confess and believe, you will be saved. You will be delivered, is the word used there. Um, and deliverance is all sorts of tied up in baptism. And so if de- if baptism is actually a type, if the sign signifies our deliverance through our union with Christ— then a passage like Romans 10.9 would seem to have much relationship with baptism. If baptism is the sign of our deliverance in Jesus Christ through union with him, then it would seem that confession and belief or confession and faith has a lot to do with with our baptism. Um, The other thing, disciples must be teachable at the time of baptism. This is why, these are all reasons why we believe we must be baptized upon the profession of faith. Disciples must be teachable at the time of baptism. So, and, and I think the Didache, the Council of Laodicea, in terms of early church history, would witness to this, that the catechumen would need to be instructed in the things of the faith before they reach the point of baptism. And there's no mention in those documents of infant baptism. And those documents are separated by centuries, uh, two centuries at least. Um, and so um, Matthew 28, 19b through 20a baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them that's in the present. So baptizing is in the present, teaching them is in the present, to observe all things that I have commanded you. It seems to indicate that the teaching and the baptizing take place at the same time, that they take place uh, concursively with one another. Um, and that would, that would seem to indicate that the person being baptized is a teachable person, 
Um, now, I know you could make all sorts of arguments, oh, well, an infant is teachable and so on and so forth, but all through the tradition, it's admitted that the, that the infant can't have his or her own faith. Um, that, that's pretty commonplace to, to actually admit that. So the infant can't have his or her own faith, and so if that's the case, then they're not teachable in terms of the, of the articles of the faith. Okay, so, um, so according to the tradition's own, I think the overall, if you're talking about the paedo-baptistic tradition, uh, an infant is generally said not to have his or her own faith, and if that's the case, then they cannot apprehend the articles of faith, thus they are not teachable. But then that would that would mean, according to Matthew 28, 19 through 20, that we shouldn't baptize them. Because the prescription here is that we be teaching while we be baptizing. All right, that might be a good t-shirt slogan. Somebody make that. You can have that. We be teaching while we be baptizing. Um, you know, a second thought, don't make that. That's really corny. Don't, don't do that at all. Um, the other thing, so, so we've, we've gone through three things here. Trinitarian, the baptism must be Trinitarian. That's, that's very important. The baptism must be by immersion, that it be upon a profession of faith of the one to be baptized, not of the parents. Uh, and then this fourth one here kind of coincides with the third one, no fruit, no baptism. Uh, James two, faith without works is dead. Uh, faith without works is dead. If there's no works, we shouldn't presume faith. That's how the brethren know the faithful, is if they have faith that is operating to produce good works. Uh, James 2 is not talking about justification before God. It's talking about justification before man. It begins with re man's relationship with man. And so James 2 should be taken into consideration here. I don't hear a lot of conversation about James 2 in relation to baptism, but I would think it should be, it should actually be quite important. Um, if the very way in which we know the Christian is through a, a visible or a lively faith that produces visibility, good deeds, you would think that that would figure into our understanding of baptism. Uh, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith. Only now he's not again. He's not talking about justification before God. He's talking about justification before men. The, the earlier context of chapter two makes that very clear. So those are the the four real important things. I could I could I could say other things that are very important to to the Baptist doctrine of baptism, namely that you know baptism is the doorway into the local church, very important. Um. But I I will I will uh, stop at those four. Uh, and move on to notating some discontinuities in church history. There are three areas where disagreements arise. And when I say disagreement, I don't mean this to sound like, you know, I don't want to overplay it. It's not like hot disagreement per se. I think in some cases it is, but, but not in general. But three areas where disagreement or discontinuity seem to be evident from theologian to theologian and from tradition to tradition is the timing of baptism, the mode of baptism, and the function of baptism. There are disagreements about those three areas of baptism within the mainline tradition. So, you know, you're thinking about the men 
or the works that you would read in church history, Didache, Cyprian, Tertullian, Council of Laodicea, Gregory of Nazianzen, um, Constantine, um, Augustine, Basil, um, Thomas Aquinas. You know, these are all these are all men who had subtle differences from one another. They weren't completely and monolithically unified on the doctrine of baptism in all of its uh, areas. Um, and then, of course, you throw the Baptists of the 17th century in there, um, the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians, and then you have even more diversity arising in the 17th century. So that diversity, however, kind of gets its roots from earlier times, which I think is really interesting. Like, what's going on in the 17th century? Again, this is, I said this earlier, but what's going on in the 17th century between the Baptists and the Presbyterians is not, like, completely new. Yes, there's innovation. Is it principally and absolutely novel? And the answer is no. What's going on between those two camps? It's not absolutely novel at all. Sometimes even in the 17th century, you know, Baptists were cast as these... Anabaptist sympathizers that were coming up with a novel, uh, a novel idea grounded in some 15th century accretion, and that's just not the case. And so, um, one of what, so let me just do this. I'm gonna this is this is gonna be brief. Timing of baptism, Didache, that's one of the earliest post-canonical Christian works. And when I say post-canonical, I mean a work that was pinned by men following the closure of the New Testament canon. It's, I think there's some good reasons to think that the Didache was actually written in the first century. Um, the tradition even seems to go as far as to say that it was written by the apostles, but we'll, we'll leave that for another episode. Um, <clears throat> even if it was written by the apostles, we would, it's not inspired, but, um, it's a significant document. If you're talking about extra-biblical literature, Didache tells us a lot about what the early church was thinking. And it's noticeable that there there are no infant, there's no infant baptism mentioned in the Didache. Now, of course, the excuse, uh, the Didache deals only with baptism of catechumen. And of course, those who hold to paedo-baptism would look at the Didache and they would say, well, that doesn't mean that infant baptism didn't exist uh, back then. And then they would accuse someone like me of, of, you know, using an argument from silence. I'm just saying, well, if it's absent, if it's not there, there's no reason for me to think that the authors of the Didache held to infant baptism. Um, and then they would say, well, you don't have any evidence to say they, they didn't. Maybe they just didn't speak of it. Well, that's the argument from silence. You're essentially saying that they made a positive claim and had a positive belief without there being any positive evidence in the Didache itself for that positive belief. And so that would be the argument from silence. And I would want to say that, well, if it's not there, I have no reason to believe it. So is it possible that they held to infant baptism, that the authors of the Didache held to infant baptism? Sure, it's possible. Do I have, like, evidence in the Didache to, to think that that's the case? And the, the answer is obviously no. So you have the Didache where there, there are no infants mentioned. You have Cyprian where... Infants can be baptized at any time. Like, so there's this, there is an infant baptism, but, you know, th this would kind of differentiate Cyprian from later traditions and say, you know, like, 
we should baptize infants at the eighth day to kind of emblemize, you know, the significance of circumcision under the Old Testament better. Um, Cyprian's kind of saying, like, no, like, infant, infants can be baptized at any time. There's no hard and fast rule here. And, and in fact, you should probably just get them baptized as soon as possible. <laughs> so I'm not saying that Cyprian was a Baptist by any means. I mean, he's not even close. But, um, but he believed something that was distinct from what later traditions would, would believe. Tertullian, there is no infant baptism. He argues against that. But he does so for a different reason. I would refer you to... Um, Gavin Ortland did a wonderful episode on the historicity of baptism. It may have been a series, but he talks about Tertullian and he talks about some of the early church um, uh, kind of versions of credo baptism and how, yeah, accidentally or outwardly we would agree with them. Uh, but, you know, someone like Tertullian's holding to credo baptism for a very different reason. Uh, than we would. But it is significant to note, like Tertullian was a respected figure in the early church that was uh, denying uh, infant baptism. And if he was, you know, you got to ask the question, like, was he the only one doing it? Um, probably not. The Council of Laodicea, there's no infant baptism. That's significant. Uh, and, and, and of course, this is in the fourth century. So, You've got generations of Christians under the church's belt at this point, and you would think that a discussion, especially with the contentions of Tertullian in the 3rd century, 2nd century, something like that, especially with controversy over baptism happening between the 4th century and the Didache, probably 1st century document, uh, you would think that the Council of Laodicea would be careful to talk about infant baptism, especially since it has uh, a canon uh, multiple canons dedicated to infant baptism, but it but it it does no such thing. And so you've got to ask, like, why is there no attention paid to infant baptism if it was so ordinary and normative? Then why doesn't the Council of Laodicea reference it? Why doesn't it talk about it? Why why does it only talk about catechumen baptism and the need for uh, catechumens to be instructed in the things of the faith? You know, it'll say things like. Um, Actually, don't even think I have any. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I don't have that pulled up. I, w I wish I had that pulled up. I'd be able to read it to you, but you should be able to find a free copy of it online. Council of Laodicea. It's a fourth century document. Um, Gregory of Nazianzen, infants should be baptized when they are pressed by danger, is his language. So here you have a baptism of infants. Baptism is kind of expedited by the parent. There's liberty to do that if if the child is in danger of losing his or her own life. But again here, this isn't an ordinary practice. So did, did Gregory of Nazianzen believe in infant baptism? Yes. Did he believe infant baptism was the norm? And I would uh, I'd say no. I don't think he did. Uh, Maybe he did and never and didn't write much about that. I don't know. Maybe, but the the positive evidence isn't there to demonstrate the positive claim. Constantine, you had this whole tradition in the first few centuries of the church where baptism would be delayed because it was a popular belief that after if you sinned after baptism, you couldn't renew your baptism and you'd basically be doomed. But you can kind of, in Constantine's error, you can kind of see again. If you have a, a figure like him, 
and it was he was very influential and he was taking his cues from other people um you know this was apparently a tradition in the first few centuries of the church and so you can is it erroneous yes but does it help you to see that there's a plurality of opinions concerning baptism in the early church amongst those who would be considered orthodox on other things more fundamental things yes so the timing of baptism is not a monolith in the early church the mode of baptism is not a monolith in the early church between immersion, sprinkling, cold water, normal temp, flowing water, still water, um, effusion, you know, Gregory of Nazianzen believed in threefold immersion. So it's this, you know, this, uh, you go down into the water three times. Um, and then you have, uh, and, it, and that's kind of like a type of, you know, the days that our Lord uh, was was dead. So that's, that's, to, that's to signify that he was dead for three days. Uh, Basil, hold to a threefold immersion, held to a threefold immersion. Augustine, sprinkling or immersion, he appeals to Cyprian for Christian liberty on this point, uh, that he doesn't think it's worth drawing out contentions and quarrels over it, so there's some liberty, sprinkling or immersion. Um, I think Thomas practically takes that view later on in the Middle Ages as well. Gregory of Nazianzen, um, Let's move to the function of baptism. So the mode of baptism, again, there's differences there. There's differences in terms of the timing of baptism. There's differences in terms of the function of baptism. What does baptism actually do? There's differences there. Um, it seems like that the constant beat of the drum is that the outward sign is a type of an inward grace, which Bapt Baptists could agree with, actually. So... Um, where we would disagree, we would say, okay, so like the Roman Catholics might say that at the time of the administration of the outward sign, the inward grace is wrought. And we would say, well, no, the inward grace is wrought antecedently that, and, and, and that, that, that prompts a confession, a profession. And then at that point, the outward <clears throat> sign is administered in testimony to the fact that the inward grace has been wrought. Uh, inward grace being the work of regeneration. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzen held that it was typical or internal, uh, that it is a type, that the outward sign was a type of the internal change. All right, so that's <clears throat> that's as early as Gregory. I, I think it's even earlier than him. In fact, I know it is, um, because not only do you have that kind of language in Scripture that it's a type, but... Uh, that baptism is a type, but you also have in the earlier church fathers that kind of language as well. Augustine um, believed that you can receive invisible sanctification. So you can receive the invisible and inward grace without the outward sign. Uh, now, elsewhere in his work, he would he would very much discourage presuming upon that reality. And he would, it seems like in Augustine's mind, receiving the outward sign is normative and ordinary, and it's to be assumed that if you didn't receive the outward sign, then you were probably not a believer. And I think a, a Baptist could could agree with that uh, uh, as well uh, upon some qualifications. Uh, Thomas held to that same view. He just follows Augustine. <coughs> um, that you know, uh, people can receive the inward grace without 
the outward sign. Some hold, held, it seems like, throughout church history, some would hold that without the outward sign, there just simply is no salvation, um, which, of course, you know, Baptists especially would disagree with. Um, so there you can even see that there's there's differences. There's a great deal of unity of, when it comes to the function of baptism. Now, because the outward sign is it often takes to itself language proper only to the inward grace, you get the notion of baptismal regeneration. And this close linkage, this almost necessary linkage between the outward sign and the inward grace, such that if the outward sign is performed, then the inward grace is wrought as well, especially in infants. And so that kind of language develops um, to a point where I think it's, abused with regard to infant baptism uh, later on in the history of the church, especially getting the fourth, fifth, especially fifth century, sixth century, and onward. Um, areas of continuity. Where are some similarities? In other words, what I'm trying to point out here is like, what does everybody agree on? Like, are there, are there strands of continuity with baptism? Yeah, there are actually. Um, Everybody agrees that baptism needs to be performed according to a triune formula, and that if it's not performed according to a triune formula, it's actually heretical. It's not just irregular. It's it's heretical. Um, everybody agrees that baptism must involve real water, um, that it be no other element but water. So that's another commonality. Everybody agrees that it be received by faith. Um now, let me qualify that because some would make the gross mistake of saying that it can be received by proxy, that is, through the faith of the parent in the case of the infant. So we would reject that. But what I want to point out here is that everybody's kind of giving uh, faith a place in baptism. We would hold, as Baptists, we would say that if you do not approach the ordinance of baptism with a faith that God has given you, not your parents, not your sponsor, but you, unless you approach baptism in that way, then you are not a proper candidate for baptism. So God must give you faith, and then the church, in order to ascend to your uh, in order to ascend to your status as a Christian, and therefore your place within the flock, within the fold, must be able to see or experience your faith in some way, per James 2. And so that's where the profession comes in, and uh, a kind of a, a, a time conditioned by wisdom, uh, where the eldership and the congregation has opportunity to observe uh, before they... Uh, vote to covenant with you as a fellow member. And, and that would then entail, of course, baptism. Uh, so baptism be done in the triune formula. Everybody agrees with that, that it involved real water. Everybody agrees with that, that faith is involved. Everybody agrees with that, although there's qualification there because some people say that faith can be long to the parent. And the, that's effectual for the infant. We would reject all that. Uh, and then fourthly, that the outward sign signifies an invisible, internally wrought grace. 
And I would say it's even a larger part of the tradition to, to, to also make clear that the inward grace is not necessarily dependent upon the outward sign. Now, of course, as Baptists, we would say, amen, yes, obviously. The outward sign follows from the inward grace for us. Uh, because it follows only when you've been regenerated and converted. Um, but I think throughout the, the even even amongst the Pado Baptists throughout the tradition, you see that uh, they were they were even saying, they were making they were carving out some room in their tradition. Um, and they were trying to be biblical. Of course, I don't think they went far enough, but uh, they were trying to, uh, they were trying to um, rightly relate the salvation of the Christian to the sovereignty of God in the sense that they were confessing and believing that a person could be regenerated and converted apart from the ordinance or the sacrament of baptism. The, the, so, so in other words, a person could be saved and regenerated, converted apart from the outward sign. All right, and so, of course, Baptists agree with that. Yeah, um, people are saved, they're regenerated and converted uh, prior, antecedently, to the outward sign being administered. Um, I, I think we, we would agree with most of the historical church in saying that, um, in saying that yeah, uh, regeneration isn't necessarily connected to the outward sign. Uh, we, we, of course, I think, again, I think we, we would be more consistent with the scriptures. Again, otherwise I wouldn't be a Baptist. We'd be more consistent with the scriptures by saying that, um, you know, the inward grace is wrought first, then the outward sign is, is administered. Um, but I think you get a consistency of, of thought throughout the tradition that would say, you know, the outward sign isn't necessarily linked to the inward grace, which should cause us to pause for a moment when we consider doctrines like uh, like uh, baptismal regeneration and whether or not the contemporary understanding of baptismal regeneration in various circles would, would align with uh, the historical teaching of the church. I had better stop there um, way over time. This is a joy to talk about these things. I would, uh, I would love to keep doing this. I have a running document, in fact, on ancient ecclesiology and baptism that I'm just going to keep putting together. I've got Gregory of Nazianzen, Oration 40, Lombard Sentences. That's actually uh, quite interesting. Um, of course, the Summa, Augustine. Uh, so that's early church stuff. I'm going to start filling it in with, uh, I've got, like I said, I have Lombard and Thomas. I'm going to start filling it in with some more medievals. I'm going to fill it in, of course, with Baptists and Presbyterians, and I'm just going to I'm going to get a working document together of, um, you know, source material concerning baptism. And it's going to be a document that I can use to, to analyze areas of continuity where we align, areas of discontinuity where we differ. So uh, it'll probably be something I'll be talking about on here more often. So, uh, or hopefully, I don't know. Who knows? We'll, we'll see. But um, hopefully this was helpful. If it was, please consider sharing it. Uh, if you benefited from it, then so too may someone else. 
Uh, if you haven't clicked the subscribe button, click the subscribe button. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.